Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, member Yolo Goose 96 shares his path from being unemployed when he first graduated in 2011 to working as a paralegal for $43,000 per year to now making well over $200,000 as an associate director at a large private equity fund in a business development function. Learn how he's able to make an internal pivot from compliance to business development at a large asset manager, what was the key inflection point in his career, and now how he was ready to take advantage when the opportunity presented itself. Enjoy. Josh, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Thank you, Patrick. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. Right. So it'd be awesome if you could just give the listeners a short summary. Sure. So I graduated 2011 from the University of Michigan. Um, I was an economics major, graduated with a 3-4, didn't really have job offers. You know, the job market was totally different post-crisis. Eventually got a job as a paralegal for about a year, thinking I wanted to do law school, which several of my friends did. Uh, Ended up on the buy side uh, in a compliance role, analyst level, you know, was in the midst of a ton of regulatory reform. Spent a couple of years doing that and then landed in a business development role within my same company. Uh, Really just a great career change, great opportunity. Spent a couple of years doing that, so almost seven years at one firm, and then uh, realized it was time for a change, and that's uh, what brought me to my current role, uh, diversified PE manager based in Europe with a decent-sized office in New York. Very cool. And you're out of New York, correct? Yes. Awesome. So let's start all the way back at sure. Michigan. Um, so you're you're kind of in your freshman sophomore years. Are you thinking like law school all the way? Law school is what I want, and legal or what? You know what kind of? I don't think I was thinking anything down the road freshman sophomore year. Yeah. Um, I want to like say not like kids today who are like on top of it. <laughs> the amount of people who reach out to me, you know, through Michigan, you know, like they have such a well-developed uh, networking program and mentorship thing too. Yeah. And it's not that I, it didn't exist. It certainly may have. I just didn't know what resources I had. And I think part of it too is just how much the internet has really grown in the past decade. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'll say is, you know, I really wanted to get into either sports management, sports marketing. Um, a lot of my, you know, internships and summer gigs in college were focused around either sales and marketing Tried to get a job at CAA. It didn't really pan out. Um, and then I spoke to someone who was a, you know, a connection of a connection through my parents, mm-hmm. who was not necessarily encouraging about law school, but he saw a route if I went and did the legal education that I could end up um, in a sports management or an agent type role. Eventually kind of had to rule it out, especially after 2009, when it just became readily apparent that whatever roles there were, were getting filled by, you know, either people coming out of the Ivy League or people who just had connections, you know, out West or whatever the case may be. So like for the, you mean for the sports management, it just became incredibly competitive. Um, As the economy collapsed, you were going to be graduating kind of in the depths of of the recession. Close to it. Not definitely not as bad as the class of 09. Yeah. But I think, you know, I think people my age would probably agree that the first few years were very testy in terms of are we all going to lose our jobs again? Yeah, fair. Okay. So you're you're kind of 
switching gears midway through college like so what happened like your for your internships were you just trying to find anything i mean your grades were okay they weren't stellar but they were good i mean certainly not <laughs> they weren't but they weren't horrible it's not like you had a sub three or anything like right. that um and you know you're an econ major which is pr pretty well respected i assume at michigan and the, like you said the networking was really good were you not taking advantage of that or was it something more like you were just i mean a lot of kids do this in college they just didn't really know what they wanted so they're kind of floating floating around i think a lot of it is just trying to figure out for myself what i wanted to do Financial services was always kind of in the back of my mind. Um, I sent my resume to Goldman as a freshman and I had a three, five, my freshman year. And they said, Oh, we won't look at anyone below a three, seven, five. And that was 2007. Yeah. And things were maybe starting to decompose a little bit, but it certainly wasn't 08, 09. Right. And I said, okay, well, I'm just not going to do that because you know, like I want to have a social life. I'm in college and you know, the, economics program at Michigan is a little bit different from the business school. And obviously, you know, there are plenty, you know, I'm sure we've spoken to plenty of people from Ross where um, in 2011, you couldn't study abroad, which was a deal breaker for me to cons even consider applying. I wanted to study abroad. And that was the one thing I knew I wanted to do in college. Um, but again, financial services were in the back of my mind, but really I was focused on either sports management, sports marketing until it just, it was one of those, okay, well, this probably isn't going to happen given circumstances. So, let's be honest, you had an amazing four years. <laughs> yeah, I did. It was a, I mean, I loved college. Uh, Michigan was great. The yeah. football team was actually awful while I was there. Uh, Still haven't fully recovered. <laughs> yeah, I've heard, I have a friend out here who's a, a big follower and it's been rough. It's been rough for him. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so yes, yeah, so you studied abroad um, and was it uh, University of New South Wales? Was that correct? Yes, Australia. And did you enjoy that? It was great. You know, the big thing for me was I, I'm also fluent in Spanish. So I was looking at Buenos Aires, Barcelona and Sydney, mostly because Australia is so far away from New York that it's one of those, am I ever going to get a chance to go if I don't do this now? And that was the ultimate deal breaker for me. Yeah. I, um, I lived in Buenos Aires for almost a year. Did you know that? After Very nice. I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> And my mom, my mother's Colombian, so I speak a, a little bit of Spanish. I try to be stay fluent. I'm I'm semi fluent, I'd say. Um, Fair enough. My kids are helping me, but anyway. So okay. my brother's actually a Spanish teacher, so he and I get to practice a decent amount. Nice, that's awesome. Yeah. So you're so you're kind of coming up to graduation. Are you now getting like? Are you freaking out? Do you have something lined up, or are you unemployed right when you graduate? Uh, all of the above. I thought I had something lined up. I was interviewing uh, at a firm, a pretty large tech company that has a huge office in Ann Arbor. Uh, they ultimately decided to pass on my resume because I quote, didn't have the requisite experience, even though they knew I was a college senior, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do with that information. But I did graduate, I- Was it an you know, they pulled last second or was it you did an internship for them and then they pulled it? No, I was just interviewing for a role that, you know, like just a, essentially a lateral hire type role, I think. And I was very upfront with, look, I'm still in university of, you know, I'm still in college. Is that going to be an issue? And they said, no, we don't think so. We're looking, it's an entry level role. And then they turned it into, you just don't have the experience. Right. Um, but again, you know, that was kind of the post crisis mentality where everyone's kind of taking a step lower probably than yeah. they were otherwise qualified for. Okay. So I did graduate. I didn't have uh, an offer lined up. I was somewhat freaking out. Mm -hmm. I spent the first essentially two months after graduation of just, you know, talking to as many people as I could. LinkedIn was barely what it is today. Um, you know, it was really just pulling as many strings as I could, leveraging my parents' personal networks. They're both doctors. So they have nothing, no insight into financial <laughs> totally services. Totally useless like my dad too. <laughs> He's a doctor. So, uh, yes. Other than the personal network, by virtue of living around New York City, right. they couldn't really advise me on anything necessarily. Okay, so you're you're basically um, graduating. You're in a pretty tough spot. Do you go move home for a while? I had to, and thankfully, you know, I grew up in Long Island. My parents were living there at the time, so it was easy enough to get to New York City for interviews, to hop on a phone call. Oh, that's huge! Huge advantage. Huge, and it's one you know I'm very blessed to have had that because if I had you know been living in the Midwest or you know somewhere where that was sent definitely, you know, more affected by the actual housing crisis, who knows like what my circumstances would have been. 
So I'm thankful to have been given several opportunities that I just kind of was born into. Yeah, I feel like if if you were in the same situation and yet you were in, let's say, middle of nowhere, Idaho. Um, Southfield, Michigan is a pretty well-off area that was decimated in the financial crisis. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, if you were there and you didn't have the wherewithal to somehow get to New York, I mean, I almost would tell people, is there somewhere you can crash, something you can do at, you know, at night, working at night just to pay your rent and get into a tiny, like share, like a share uh, a three bedroom apartment with eight people or a two bedroom apartment with five people, something crazy. I have done that after I moved to New York. Uh, We'll get to that, I'm sure later, but. Yeah, because, you know, the advantages of being in the city, whether it's in New York or another big, you know, in LA or a, a yeah. Chicago is, cannot be understated for opportunities because you're just able to network so much more effectively. And if you treat the networking like a full-time job and you somehow are able to work a side hustle to pay for your rent and your food, you just, you're going to, you're going to eventually hit it. If you get, if you, if you get good at, at telling your story. Absolutely. So, okay. So you're, you're living at home, you're doing the trips into the city and you're still looking at legal at this point, or you're looking at anything and everything. I had taken the LSAT uh, my junior year of college before I went abroad just okay. to have a score that I could leverage. Yep. Between my, I lived in a frat house for a year and a half. So that obviously affected my ability to really focus and put in the effort required. Um, but it was a decent LSAT score. Again, my GPA was fine. Yep. And I was still considering law school. Uh, I ended up getting an offer around July of 2011. So, you know, two months after I graduated. Yep. The law firm that I knew it wasn't the long-term answer, but it was a job and it was, again, 2011. Anything that was income was better than nothing. Right. Uh, I was living with my parents for a couple months. I moved into the city with one of my closest friends from growing up in uh, September. You mind sharing what the pay was around for that? Was like a 40? No, not at all. It was 43K a year uh, with overtime. So that was nice. But again, it, you know, it was anything that could at least cover even if yeah. 80% of my paycheck was going to rent, at least I could live in the city. Yeah. So you're, you're basically um, living in the city with your friend, you're getting paid, you know, just enough to survive. Um, basically. And are you, how much overtime are you actually clocking? So you're bringing home more like 55, 60 K because you're doing so much overtime or is it you're usually doing 40? I mean, it was very much ebb and flow, and that law firm was far more dependent on what the partner was doing in terms of business. Mm-hmm. So I got assigned to a team where the partner was kind of treating it like he made enough for himself, and if there wasn't enough work to go around, then whatever. Yeah. So after two, three months, I realized you know, like, there were a, a confluence of factors that said, time to do something different already. Yeah. So I moved to a corporate law firm. Uh, pretty well established in New York, a couple of offices around the world. And that was far more, I think, interesting to me in terms of where I saw potentially a legal career going. Mm-hmm. And also the workload was considerably more. So, you know, I think it's one of those things that you probably hear from investment bankers or XI bankers, where the bonus and the pay is really good and you have no time to spend any of the money. So you end up saving a ton. Yeah. <laughs> So, so your, when your I was jumped, your pay jump from what 43,000, let's say 50,000 with overtime up to right, what? I, I think if you had annualized it, it probably would have about 75 to 80. So, there's a massive jump in pay, yes. So, a massive jump in pay, you're actually not you're not like eating ramen noodles with like 20 roommates anymore. No, you're, now mind you, I'm also in the office till midnight or two every morning, and I'm not getting banker at, uh pay. So, yeah, you know, so every everything is uh relative, I guess. Yeah, you were you were working for that extra pay. Let's put it that way. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so your your dollars per hour probably weren't were that different, um, but it's good. So you're you're kind of developing that work ethic too, at least a little bit. You're you know you're getting through the grind. Um, tell me, so you know the first place you were out pretty fast because you saw the writing on the wall. There wasn't consistent work necessarily. You get to a bigger corporate law firm, tons of work. You're grinding. You're not getting you're not you're getting paid pretty well for most people in the country, but for New York you know, it's, it's good. Um, but you probably wanted more. Tell me what made you kind of start looking around and what were you looking at in that next kind of round? Cause you didn't have much time to recruit, right? Not really. So I was at that, the second law firm for a year and about a month or two mm-hmm. in that time, Hurricane Sandy also happened. 
which was a pretty formative uh, couple weeks, I would say. Mm. But after I took the June 2012 LSAT, and while working at this law firm, you know, you get to work with a couple different partners, a couple different associates, you know, different teams, mm-hmm. and it was really great experience, you know, covering M&A, uh, securitizations, um, really just kind of everything in financial services. Uh, the biggest thing that happened was I would talk to associates, and one who I really respect and I'm still in touch with today, uh, pulled me into his office and said, look, this is really good work. You don't want to be an attorney, go do something else. And that kind of stuck with me because as I started hearing that more and more and seeing my friends in law school who were going through it, uh, you know, they did summer associate gigs at that point and were, you know, like their weekends would be shot. And everyone in the law for industry kind of knows that if you're a summer associate working terrible hours, it's only going to get worse from there. Yeah, they're miserable. <laughs> I don't know that my friends are necessarily miserable. I mean, some of them are still doing it and they actually well, at this, they're at the stage they love paid. what they do. You can get paid really well, but you got to suffer for a while to get yes. those, those uh, top rungs. It, you really have to put in the time. It's similar to medicine though, you know, residency. You suffer. Oh, for sure. And the pay is a lot better than it is in medicine and you don't have to do seven years of residency and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, but if you, the if you really love the deal, law. You really love law, but so tell me why this person brought you into his office and said, "Like, don't do it." I think he. I mean, he ended up leaving a couple months later to go get his MBA. Mm-hmm. So maybe it was also for him. It just wasn't the right decision. Right now, I had the benefit of hearing and coming to that realization before I took out, you know, a quarter of a million dollars for student loans, mm-hmm. which that was the ultimate deal breaker for me. Um, I think, you know, you look at how bad student the student loan crisis is. In America today, it's a trillion and a half dollars at this point. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be, you know, to take out money for a job I didn't, to go to school I didn't want to do, to get a job I didn't want, when I could just avoid all of that entirely was the why I ultimately decided not to go to law school, I think. So then what were you thinking in terms of alternatives? I mean, I know you ended up, I know where you ended up, but <laughs> tell me how you came to that. Like, was there somebody who kind of sat you down and started explaining things to you? Was it because you were working in, capital markets, M&A, that, that intrigued you more? Like you said, hey, I want to go the finance route. Honestly, the company that ended up hiring me for the legal and compliance role was a client of that law firm. Mm-hmm. And I knew them by name. And, you know, I started poking around, you know, websites, career pages. Mm-hmm. And they had an analyst level opening on the legal side. And I said, okay, great. You know, if it's, you know, even if it's just doing much of the same but at least it's a foot in the door. That's perfect for me. And it ended up being totally different because it was posted under legal, but it was much more of a compliance role. Mm. And again, you know, to just get my foot in the door and, you know, really say like, okay, I'm on a, the path that I think I want to go, or at least it's a closer to the path. But that you, was the like, ultimate decision. You were getting under the right, you were getting under a financial firm, yes. that umbrella, but you're still in the legal or compliance capacity. So for you, were you telling yourself, like, I know I can make that leap eventually? Or was there somebody saying, hey, this has been done before? Because from what I know, that's not an easy leap to make, going legal compliance, you know, what many people that are like. I that. don't know that that was even a twinkle in my eye at that point. I was just happy to be at a financial services firm. Okay. And at least have some semblance of a career path. Okay. And I ended up doing compliance for almost five years. So, you know, I did enjoy the nature of the work to some extent. Tell me about um, that. What were you doing? Like what types of compliance? What, what, anything you could tell the listeners? Like, cause I don't know, I know nothing about compliance. Before. Without everyone's eyes rolling to the back of their head. Yeah, without uh, let's see. Getting, getting bored. <laughs> A lot of it was around Dodd-Frank and uh, some of the European regulations that were coming into effect. So it was, a lot of it was just project tracking where, I mean, it is monkey work. Yep. It's, you know, you have three different attorneys or VPs, directors, MDs running a project, mm-hmm. and it's delegating who's going to cover, you know, making sure that these trading regulations, when they come into effect, do we have the framework in place? Do we have the reporting infrastructure? Um, what do we need to tell clients? Like, if we're going to need to change investment guidelines, we would work with those teams. 
everything that you can kind of imagine in the regulatory compliance space, given the scale of the firm was in scope and they do, you know, they had hedge, hedge funds, a private equity fund funds business, mm -hmm. standard long, short equity, um, long only ETFs. You, you, if you name it, they do it. Do you feel like getting exposure to all that stuff was helpful in terms of your overall perspective and knowledge of, of how, finance, how this firm worked and finance in general? Without question, I would say the biggest inflection point for me was two years after I'd started, I had been promoted from analyst to associate by then. Mm -hmm. uh, the SEC came knocking and said, hey, we're going to run a pretty routine examination on one of your advisor entities. Here's like the list of everything we need you to produce. And it was 60 to 70 different individual line items. Mm -hmm. Not a small examination. And that was just the first letter that they sent us. Uh, after a couple, you know, a couple months go by, they were in the throes of the examination. They're looking specifically uh, at the firm's fixed income business, partly because in 2014 was a giant high yield dislocation where ETFs, uh, NAV was totally unrelated or really just diverging wildly from the actual basket of underlying securities. Mm -hmm. And the SEC wanted to understand from our firm and with two or three other firms, you know, who are pretty well developed in that space, what did you see? Explain to us how, like, if this happens again, how do we correct for it? That type of thing. Yeah. But it was for me a personal crash course in the fixed income and high yield, yeah. which I found really interesting. I got to work with a bunch of business managers mm -hmm. and I was on a first name basis at that point with the head of fixed income. That's cool. That's really cool. So, so me, yeah, so tell me, is that that was kind of the inflection point where you developed a relationship, right? Internally, for sure. Um, I think one of my greatest skill sets is just the ability to cultivate relationships with people. Mm -hmm. It's something I definitely don't take for granted, but at the same time, it's a recognition that I just don't have a lot of the technical skills by not doing the banking or research uh, right. curricula in either in college or having that internship and training experience. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, you do what you're good at. And I was able to really develop strong relationships inside the company. Eventually parlayed that into a second role in compliance, which was essentially being the point person uh, for advisory. Anytime we, a portfolio manager or trader ran into a compliance block on their internal systems. Okay. And so then like, what was next for you? What was, did you see, Hey, I'm going to be a path. This is this like a promotion. Would you say it was a lateral thing? They yeah. gussied it up to make it sound like my ceiling would be higher, but I think they were just like, we just lost a VP and we can backfill with an associate who knows the company even better. Yeah. <laughs> Fair. Okay. So, so <laughs> yeah. tell me about like, uh, yeah. How did that develop? I, so they hired a new director for the team. Uh, we got along really well, did that for another year or two. And eventually I just said, you know what, this really isn't going anywhere. I really need to do something different. And I'm, I've hit the road, the end of the road with compliance. So I pulled more strings internally, you know, used my network at the company as best as I could. And one of the other groups and businesses that I covered is really just the institutional sales team. Uh, so everything from you know, your small single family office where the guy sold the company and he has a couple hundred million dollars to invest up through your mega pensions. Mm -hmm. um, that entire realm was covered by one business at the firm. They had a dedicated alternative sales team, which covered on the more liquid side, private equity, infrastructure, real estate, down to their more liquid alternative hedge fund business. Mm -hmm. One of my really good friends at the time, still in touch with, uh, he was... His team had a couple openings. Met with him. Met with was the, he on the hedge? Sorry, was he on the hedge fund or the or the? He was, yeah. Hedge fund side, okay. And again, the team was kind. Of, you know, they had a pool of associates, analysts who covered really just every different business line. Um, they it was more segmented the more you were on the team. Mm -hmm. um, but if you join as an analyst, you know, you kind of get a good exposure to everything. Mm -hmm. I was joining as an associate, so I was more dedicated on the hedge fund side. Met with the hiring manager, met with the two couple to listeners, like as a large asset manager, what, what this team means. This doesn't mean you guys are running, you guys aren't actually putting the money to work or is it you're, you're coming up with like 
products or like, is it an actual hedge fund with like where you're raising? That's a, a great question. Or are you, or are you like, when you, say, when you say clients, explain it, explain to listeners like what you mean by the clients. So yeah, I get it. The, you, the, the single family office all the way up to the huge pension funds, but what are you doing for them? Are you actually creating a pool of capital and investing that in, in direct or as a hedge fund? So it was a mix of both the firm's hedge fund of funds business where they would take investor capital right. and, you know, if they want to do a diversified, you know, multi-strategy hedge funds, you know, like the firm had relationships with really a number of different funds on the street. Right. But they also had a direct hedge fund business where um, they, they would have portfolio managers who would run some long only capital, maybe hedge fund or um, mutual funds mm -hmm. or use strategies in Europe more retail oriented products, mm -hmm. but then they would also be able to maybe not run a best ideas book, but if you don't have the ability to go short because of, you know, the 1940 act or, you know, retail limitations, mm -hmm. this was an ability for them to really run and untethered, not untethered, but essentially their best ideas capital book for lack of a better description. Got it. Okay. So there was still kind of a direct investment component to it. Yes. Although we were not necessarily on the investment teams, we were really the fundraisers, business development team. Got it. We would partner with what we, what the team, the firm would call product strategists and portfolio managers mm -hmm. to create a more targeted narrative, depending on what the client was, each individual client was looking for. Perfect. Okay. That helped me a lot. <laughs> Frame it in my mind. Oh yeah, of course. Okay. okay so, because yeah, I feel like if I can't understand it, some of the listeners won't understand it either. Okay. So you're, you're... It took me a year to iron out that, so <laughs> it's still pretty choppy. Yeah, it's still confusing because when you have such a large asset manager controlling so much money, they are, they are both in the fund of funds business, meaning they're allocating dollars to specific fund managers, but they're also kind of creating products themselves, individual products, right? With like yes. the, the portfolio. Um, the product managers and all that stuff and coming up with, so if a, a large endowment comes to you and says, Hey, we want to allocate to XYZ industry with this type of risk reward profile, help us create that. Exactly. Figure it out. At least on the alternative side, you know, there would be a dedicated person to cover the whole, the relationship writ large yep. where they might do the long only equity, the um, fixed income book, multi-asset, whatever the case may be. And, so and then we would kind of be the dedicated alts uh, coverage, really the really informed team to speak to. Got it. And so your role as an associate coming in there, you were kind of, you said associate was a little more dedicated, whereas analyst was more general in that group. You were yes. really more dedicated on the hedge fund side. Um, so tell me, what did that mean? What did your day-to-day -day look like? What were you doing for the most part? I would say it was probably a mix of like I guess it would be 40, 40, 20, where the first 40% is just new business, uh, you know, trying to find potential clients. If we use an industry, get a de uh, database or other, you know, internal sources of knowledge to say, okay, we know that these three large scale investors are looking at long short equity. Well, we have these hedge funds that might be of interest. These, this group is looking, is really into, um, AI or machine learning and how that can affect their equity book. We have a whole platform for that. Uh, if they're just looking for multi-strategy global macro, we can help them with that too. So really it's identifying clients, identifying or uh, prospective clients, finding the strategies that may be best for a best fit, how to make them full clients of the firm. Right. The other 40%, next 40% would be existing clients, you know, ongoing reporting, due diligence questionnaires. Mm -hmm. um, if the, a portfolio outperformed or underperformed in a given quarter, we would have that kind of conversation. And then the other 20% was, you know, support for other teams, uh, just general corporate, what have you. So the 40% were with existing clients with the reporting stuff. Were you on the phone with the clients or was there like a, there was a relationship manager and you were helping support that relationship manager? It was a mix. There were certain dedicated alternatives platforms that we were essentially the full relationship manager. Yeah. Most of the time it would be, you know, like with a pension plan or something, we would, we would be on the phone to talk about the alts book mm -hmm. while maybe they had someone who maybe not the deputy CIO or that level, but a more holistic investment analyst and one of the other people from the company who 
govern the relationship as a whole. So interesting. It's confusing and interesting <laughs> of like yeah, how, I mean, it's a, how things stay organized because it's such a behemoth, you know, such a large. It's, it's several overlapping circles that all are kind of accomplishing the same goal. Got it. Okay. So there's a lot of. It does create accountability. And if someone's out of the office or whatever happens, it does, you know, it, it maintains continuity. So I think for that, it was definitely beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So fair enough. So you, you know, you made that switch after what, four or five years at the firm, almost four years plus at the firm from the compliance to this kind of biz dev, I'll call it biz dev role. Yeah. I want to say overall, it was almost seven years I was at that firm. Yeah. Which I think, you know, for our generation, it's pretty long time to do anything. I remember when I, it hit me that I'd been at the firm longer than I did college or even school. Yeah. And I, it, it was just one of those, wow, I need to like leave and just get a drink somewhere. <laughs> it was, it was depressing you a little bit from, uh, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't depressing because I really enjoyed it, but at the same time, it's like, you know, you do anything for a long time and it just kind of, it becomes a part of you. Yeah. So what was the thought process? Was, I, I want to try something new. Is that, was that, there's just like an intro, like what else is out there or was it, did you think, ever think, Hey, I'm going to stay here long term. I'm going to stay at this large asset manager. My first thought was, you know, like, why can't I just stay and, you know, get promoted every few years mm -hmm. and just, you know, build a career at one firm. Yeah. I think the big thing for me was, you know, like I, I got married in 2018 and above all else, like between that, uh, I did the CFA curriculum, which I, I'm sure we'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. The big thing for me was like, we're trying to buy a house. And I recognized and heard from friends, I heard from people who left the firm that you get paid a lot better once you, uh, you know, leave these walls. So that was kind of the ultimate push for me to really start thinking about it as happy and as much as I enjoy the work. To but, you know, again, paying how it progressed. So obviously, I assume with compliance, it was still under six figures or around six figures, like the 100K, 120K. My last year of compliance, uh, it was all in six figures, which included a pretty sizable bonus component. The issue for me was the base pay was still pretty low. Got it. And that was the harder thing for me because, I mean. But even you know, when you jump to the business development arm as an associate? Didn't it jump, didn't take, take a big When time. I moved, because it was halfway through the year, they said, we'll, you know, like we'll make you whole at the next uh, promotion cycle. Mm. Um, not that I got promoted, but they basically brought me up to what I will assume was around the standard. Um, it's like 100 or 25 or something? It was 106 at that point. Okay. Which again, I thought it, you know, it was better than I had been making in compliance, but I kind of knew in the back of my mind that if I left, it would be higher elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And like, part of that too is the just, type of role you were doing or like business dev and that type of stuff. Exactly. Did you start talking to people at like smaller asset management funds and private, you know, private equity funds in, in terms of like what kind of where you could bring your skill set? Like when did you, so you kind of woke up one day, you're like, you're married, you want to buy a house. <laughs> Like this isn't cutting it. So what was the next step for you? Did you start networking like crazy on LinkedIn? Because LinkedIn at this point, it acts actually. Yes. Really <laughs> <laughs> By 2016, LinkedIn was actually pretty solid. Um, yeah. No, I think the thing for me was when I was in compliance too, it was the field was growing so rapidly that even after two years, recruiters were reaching out to me. And if I left then, would I still be in compliance now? Probably. Yeah. But at the same time, I would have certainly gotten a, you know, the stat, I would have had more comprehensive, I would say, pay increases just by virtue of bouncing around the industry more or going to a firm with higher margins. So I, I just had, I had a pretty good network of recruiters that I was in touch with, people who uh, were looking, if not, if they were only compliance recruiters, there were people, they had people that they could connect me to on the business development side. So I just, it's not that I was every year I get in touch with recruiters and think about it, um, but it was definitely helpful to have that resource, LinkedIn or personal, you know, connections to just talk to people, see what's going on and, you know, toss my resume into the ring or, you know, put up for consideration. And so how, and before for this, 
this next jump, this biz dev role that you ended up jumping into, how many places did you interview at? How long was that process? Did you, did you get more aggressive before you jumped or was it something where like you had been looking for a couple of years, just, just kind of passively? I was fairly passive about it up till about 2017, 2018. Mm-hmm. I got married in 2018. So everything got kind of put on hold professionally at that point. Mm-hmm. And then 2019, I took, that? why do you say everything got put on hold professionally? Oh, I just, uh, between getting married, the dealing with all the wedding logistics, uh, <laughs> I'm sure there's a, somewhere there's a listener li- hearing this and just nodding solemnly. So, you know, it, you just prioritize certain things as they come about. And for me, it was, look, I'm getting married. I'm going on my honeymoon. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't even take the CFA level three exam that year because they moved it three weeks later when my wedding was that day. And my wife was not going to let me sit and take the exam in a tuxedo and just run to our wedding venue. Yeah. <laughs> that would not be good. No. So I took the level three uh, exam in 2019. And, you know, focusing on that to make sure I passed, I couldn't really network or interview anywhere. Right. And then after I took the exam, it was, okay, I think it's, you know, really it's time to start putting your foot down and seeing what else is out there. Mm-hmm. Got exam results on the, in August, about a week or two before Labor Day. So at that point, no one's even checking their inbox for resume submissions. Connected with a recruiter in person, he put a couple different things in front of me, one of which is the role I ended up accepting where I am today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, it was just one of those, you know, you put the comma and the CFA after your name and people really just start paying more attention to your resume. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, tell me about that. Do you think that this, because CFA, oftentimes I think of it as, um, someone gets a CFA if they want to go on the market side, right? They want to do something out of asset manager, hedge fund, whatnot. Absolutely. Business development. I don't often see CFA. Is that, is that incorrect? Do a lot of people in business development on the asset management side have the CFA? So I'd definitely say my previous employer, it's kind of throughout the firm. You can find people who have the, their charter in any business line. Yep. For me, you know, I, as much as I like the business development space, I knew when I was at my previous role that sales was a little too away from the markets, I think, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. And and I really wanted to get more on the product or the strategy side, which is really the role that I ended up accepting was the perfect blend of sales support, you know, covering, helping the actual business development managers salespeople, but also kind of being the liaison or nexus point between the portfolio managers and the investment teams to understand the risk profiles, the exposures, geographic, mm-hmm. um, you know, market caps, like the, essentially the fields in which, in which each fund is playing mm-hmm. and understanding why, you know, fund X may not be a good fit, but fund Y actually is a perfect fit. Right. So just being able to be closer to the strategic uh, market oriented side of the business, not just being pure sales. Exactly. Yeah. And so that, that was more interesting to you. I agree. I think that's, that's cool that you're able to kind of bridge those two. I, I feel like that's such, such a common theme, whether it's technical skills, sales skills, it's like the people who really start to accelerate in their career tend to have a blend of two and then find the role that kind of leverages both. Yeah. I would have to agree. I mean, I think, you know, just, I mean, just learning and doing the CFA curriculum itself is extremely beneficial. You know, having never done accounting, you know, when I was in undergrad, having never really done, you know, fixed income or equity valuation, even the Gordon growth model. I think I remember seeing that at some point when I took like high school calculus. Yeah. And, you know, you do that and that's when, you know, it comes back to you. But just having it fresh in my mind and being able to relearn all of that, it, it gives you additional context when you're sitting in a client meeting and you're hearing the portfolio manager talk about VAR or value at risk or you know, relative exposures. It's just that much more beneficial, I think, to get a, form your own holistic opinion. So you're a big proponent of the CFA? I would have to be, yes. Yeah. Do you feel like 
um, you got a big pay bump because of that? Or do you feel like you got a big pay bump because you finally made the jump? Or I would say it's a confluence of factors. Yeah. I don't know if I had stayed at the previous firm, like what my comp would have looked like after if I had stayed and gone into the next cycle with you the might, designation. You mind sharing a range of what you ended up negotiating? My base now is about 140, uh -huh. 145 or so you with did. a 30% bonus. So all in, it's about two to 20. That's amazing. That's great. That's a huge it's great. Job. Yeah. <laughs> and tell me a little bit about um, specifically the, like, so the interviews went well and they seemed to like, you know, like your background. I assume when you were in there, obviously you got the offer. Tell me about, so. <laughs> tell, yeah. Tell me about how that, that process went though, in terms of were there any tough questions? How did you prep for it? If, if at all, did you just kind of go into it with, like any technical, like brushing up on the CFA stuff, or did you brush up at all on like your compliance stuff, or did you just kind of more brush up on your own resume and kind of the projects you worked on? I think the biggest thing is with any interview, it's knowing who you are and what your value add is and how it relates to the role for which you're interviewing. Mm -hmm. I didn't have like, you know, there was no technical assessment. I didn't have to, I didn't even provide a writing sample, okay. which is funny because we're now interviewing people for a junior role on my, like what will be my team. And they all had to submit resume or on top of resumes, like a cover letter and a writing sample. Yeah. And my only thought was, I'm so happy I didn't have to do this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair enough. So, so yeah, go, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. You go ahead. So you're going to, you're saying that the interview, I think, you know, the biggest thing again is knowing yourself and knowing it, your own narrative, mm -hmm. you know, it, I, what was your narrative? What, what worked for you? My narrative was I had sales experience. I had operational experience and by virtue of getting the CFA charter for me, it was, I didn't necessarily want to do sales. I'm in a sales support type role, or I will be, should you hire me. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure that all the people who are actually on the road, pitching, meeting with prospective clients, they have all the resources that they need. They have the bullet points for each fund. They know, you know, what the multiple uninvested capital is because we're mostly a PE firm. Mm -hmm. um, what the, what our comparables and public market look like, what our competitors are doing based on like whatever public info we can attain. Mm -hmm. So it's really, I basically framed it as I know what the sales process looks like. I've gone through a comprehensive sales cycle. I just don't want to do that. I want to help you do it. And thankfully that me message resonated pretty well. Did you do that intentionally based on what the job description was, or did you do that just based on knowing what you wanted to do? Partly both. Mm -hmm. I knew I didn't want to do sales. I didn't want to be, you know, traveling 80% of the week, you know, seeing my wife and future kids, you know, a couple days, yeah. you know, three or four days instead of six or seven. Yeah. That was a big thing for me. And also I knew that the role, they weren't looking for someone who wanted to ultimately become a salesperson. They needed someone who was happy to be part of the business development function yeah. but was more focused on the product, more focused on... On supporting the... the exactly. The, but also knowing much more comprehensively the investment strategies. And really that's where I think, the, again, the CFA curriculum really came in handy. Are there a lot of seats like that? Did, I assume the fund has to be a certain size to be able to support a role like that. You know? I mean, I think if you, you know, if you go to... It's got to be like a 500 million plus at least, like probably billion plus. Oh, we're several billion, yeah. Yeah, so um, I, my guess is like this type of role wouldn't happen at a billion dollar fund or a or $500 million fund. It's more like, that's like a nice, your seat is, I feel like, a really nice to have and makes you yes. more, makes the team much more effective. But to get the leverage that you provide, you almost need to have that a little bit of scale, I assume. I would agree. I mean, in terms of headcount at the firm, it's above 500 people, less than a thousand, I think. Okay. So it's a, you know, it's a large company, you know, it's not a, like, you know, it's not like JP Morgan that employs 200,000 people around the world, but right. still big enough where you have that operating infrastructure and you have more specialized seats, I would say. So tell me how, you know, you've been on this job and it's still pretty new for you, but um, is it kind of what you expected? Do you feel like you went in eyes wide open? Yeah, 
overall, I think I was definitely better prepared for this. And even when I moved internally from at my previous role from compliance to the business development side, right. where I kind of, I don't want to say I rested on my laurels and it was like, oh, well, I've been at this firm for five, you know, four or five years already. I know exactly what this role entails. And it's like, actually, surprise, you don't. Mm-hmm. This one, because I had been, it was really this, a similar type of role and I had that type of experience. Yeah. You know, the everything else that comes with it is just knowing the firm itself, which is, you know, that tech platform that you really enjoyed at your previous role. We don't have that. Uh, there's no internal chat box that, you know, you can just fire off a quick message to. Like, right. you know, even internationally, because we the firm is based out of Europe, you know, you have to dial like you know, 12 different numbers before you even get <laughs> to the actual phone number of the person you're trying to call. Have you tried to push them to invest in technology and like the internal chat and the Slack, what is it, Slack type of thing? or? A- I only have so much uh, capital I can burn on that front and I'm not trying to burn it all in the first four months of there. That's fair. Maybe in a year, <laughs> maybe in a year, you'll be like, you know, guys, we could be a lot more efficient with this. Yeah. Um, very cool. Anything else uh, before we call it um, you'd like to share with the listeners in terms of kind of looking back what you would tell yourself or what you want to share with the younger listeners? Cause I mean, you've had kind of a, a very non-traditional path. I mean, compliance to business dev at a, at a, what I call it, the EPON basically, um, yeah. is, is not traditional. I mean, what I would tell myself, if, if I could talk myself like, you know, my senior year of college after that last interview before I graduated fell through. Yeah. And then I ended up chucking my Blackberry into the wall. Uh, definitely don't do that. Don't ever throw a phone. Uh, <laughs> but also I would probably say, I don't know, don't worry. You know, things always work themselves out. And, you know, especially coming from, you know, the amount of people I think who lost their shirts in 2007, 2008, maybe that rings, you know, that falls on deaf ears. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking your time to figure out what it is you want to do. Because if you feel that you need to run headlong into something, and it turns out that, that wasn't the right decision, that's far worse than taking your time and figuring out what it is you want to do, you know, even if it takes you five years to get where you think you want to be. It's interesting that you say that because we've had some other, I had a guest on recently that said, um, you know, at least for investment banking, they're like, people tell you, you know, take your time, figure out what you want to do. He's like, that's a lie. <laughs> He's like, because, <laughs> because if you don't, if, if you don't know when you get into undergrad that you want to go like invest in banking, for example, the boat sails really early, but your, yes. I think your perspective is that there's a lot of other ways to be successful besides investment banking and look at yourself as an example of, you know, you've kind of scaled up. It's, you know, yeah, you've been out of school for, for a while, but you've still gotten to a point that's, you know, pretty incredible. Um, for on any on anyone's scale so i would like to think so and you know look if you do the i banking route and you go actually to you know maybe an emerging pe or hedge fund whatever the case may be and you know maybe you end up you know making a couple million dollars by the time you're 28 you know that's great you know that is far more of the you know three standard deviation you know per person yeah. you know that's it's a very difficult thing to accomplish and it's not that people shouldn't try it's just that it's okay if you try and you don't succeed right because you've got a lot of time to figure it out you've got a lot of other options and you know my the first thing that happened to me in college was i sent my resume to goldman sachs and goldman sachs said your resume isn't high enough for not even consider you and you know it's like okay well do i you know take offense to that and I sulk or do I just say, okay, well, let's find a different route. What sounds like what was really interesting about your story is that even though you were in compliance, you were, you were bettering yourself through that CFA curriculum and putting in the hours to do that. So you didn't just sit in the, you were, you were still building something, you know, you're still investing in yourself, if that makes sense. And I think that's an important point where people can get into a backwards role even if they, maybe they hate their life, they hate their job, but they don't do anything about it. They just complain <laughs> um, yeah. versus, versus like you actually started building relationships internally. I think that's a really important takeaway. 
you, you were building relationships early, kind of made a pivot within the firm while you were building up your your profile with through through a strong credential. I think it's, you know, I I think I mean you're touching on something that I would love to yeah expound please. on further. But you know, we've been doing this for almost an no. hour at this point. Go, go ahead. We'll let we'll expound. The big thing for me is you know if you're not learning or if you're not you know constantly bettering yourself everyone around you probably is so you're by virtue of being idle you're falling behind mm. whether it's a cfa curriculum i mean i also took the gmat and as i mentioned i took the lsat you know I, I kind of looked at everything and you know am i still considering business school today yeah you know i just don't know if it's necessarily going to continue me on the path that i see for myself mm-hmm. but at the same time you know, I think the big thing is if you don't like something about what you're doing, the worst thing you can do is worry or complain because if you have the ability to change it, you can then do something. And if it's something that's completely out of your hands, then there's no sense in worrying because it will resolve in its own due course or you'll, it will change enough to the point where you have the ability to do something about it. Did you feel like that ever when you were in compliance? Like, I don't like this. Right. Oh yeah, of course. But I mean, you know, I, I, every day in my role, which I love 90% of the time, there's that 10% where you're slamming your head into the, your desk. <laughs> I think that's, you know, it's the nature of anything. Yeah. People who really enjoy iBanking and even, you know, if they make the jump to private equity, you know, research at the end of the day, you know, if you're looking, doing the operational or, you know, due diligence, if you've been doing it for 10 years, it's probably pretty rote at this point, but you still got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Any job, even, even what I, even what I do with Wall Street Oasis, I feel like sometimes I'm smack slamming my head against the wall. Of course. <laughs> and it's like, there's a lot of fun stuff that I get to do. Um, like talk to people like you, but, uh, anyways, you. I think it's a, it's a fun part of the job. I, I love these podcasts. I love talking to people. Like you. Thank you for taking the time. Um, I think it was really insightful for a lot of people. So I appreciate that. And thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, looking forward to staying in touch. All right, man. Thanks. Thanks, Patrick. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way. Patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.